Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Hey, Shiloh, welcome back. So we took a little break for general conference. Was that... That was the previous week or the week before? I don't remember how, how that's happening because we just keep recording. <laughs> anyway, we just kept recording. Anyway, there was some little break in our podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were going to do an Easter episode and then we didn't and we figured that we can give the editors some time to catch up. And yeah, I don't know which episode's getting released when either. Before the podcast, before this one. So Yes. Okay. So we're, we're recording this just after conference. And so I yes. think this is going to get recorded, released like two weeks after conference. So I guess now yeah. everybody knows when we're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we're recording this just after conference. Um, we are doing sections 41 through 44 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So these sections are revelations surrounding the church's movement, sort of of the headquarters of the church to Ohio. So these, this talks about, uh, what the saints are going to do when they get there. We've got the Edward Partridge, the first bishop being called and what's he, what he's supposed to do. We've got additional regulations, um, quote unquote, the law given to the church that kind of just spells out, you know, Hey, these are all the rules that you have to live by. If you want to be a member of the church, so to speak, you know, some sort of 10 commandments style. And uh, we get into some discussion about uh, what we call the law of consecration and the office of bishop is is tied up within that. Again, some more discussion about the law of the church, what governs the conduct of the members of the church. And then we have some ancillary revelations that have to do with reiterating Joseph Smith's authority and then talking about a little bit about missionary work, um, how that's going to go forward, and then a little more discussion of, of the millennium. So a bunch of themes that surround you know, these early days of the church, a lot of things the saints were, were interested in, and then just talking about how they're, they're going to form that. So these sections do present, as, as some have before, some challenging language, <laughs> I guess you could say, ways that uh, the Lord speaks that can cause us a little bit of question as to what really is going on here. What does he mean? What did the people at the time take this revelation to mean? And then I think maybe a more important question, what should we take this to mean and how do we fit this into our lives? I think that's a difficult thing to wrestle with. We've we've had a little bit of discussion about this before we started the recording, but you know, starting off with with section 41 here, this is a revelation that actually I was looking over some of the Joseph Smith papers project stuff um, as I was reading through this. And actually this revelation has been modified somewhat <laughs> as some of the others have. And there's, there's a few details here and there added to provide some context that weren't really in the original revelation, which I thought was, was kind of interesting. Um, so if you go in the, the gospel library app, it actually has, all the resources on this for the history of the church. And you can go look it up and, and see specifically what 
the original text of the Revelation was and how it varies from this. And and then it gives historical context as to why. So it, it's kind of an interesting thing for anybody that's like a uber Doctrine Covenants nerd or something. <laughs> <laughs> First verse of section 41, I think has some some challenging language in it uh, right off the bat. Um, and it's something I kind of want to address here. So we have, hearken and hear, O ye my people, saith the Lord your God, ye whom I delight to bless with the greatest of all blessings, ye that hear me. So first off, that's not the challenging part, right? That's that's the part that... <laughs> <laughs> How that, dare you say that God loves to bless us? <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that's the part that really uh, describes the God that I know and that I have experience with. Right. And, and I like that here that the Lord delights in blessing us, that this is, you know, part of his work and his glory. His greatest joy is to bless his children. I mean, who doesn't feel that way when you have children to be able to provide them with things? Who doesn't like to give things to their children or give them experiences or things or praise or whatever? That is, I think, uh, speaking as a father, one of greatest joys. And so I, I can see that here. I kind of feel that. But then we go into something that uh, I believe takes a little bit more explanation. It says here, And ye that hear me not will I curse, that have professed my name with the heaviest of all cursings. Here is a, a theme that we've brought up several times as we've discussed the scriptures. It, it's one of perspective here. So I think in this context here, we have the Lord speaking to those that will hear him not, which is kind of ironic, right? It's like, well, if, why are you talking to him if they're not going to hear you? And it sort of though plays out this perception that a person can have that if they aren't seeking the Lord to understand him and to really hear his voice and um, experience him in their lives, that much of what their life experience is like might feel or might their experience might be that of a little uh, on the curse side, right? Much of life is just difficult. I think that without the perspective that the Lord can give us in our experience with God, our perception of it can be something that is, you know, looks at life in a, a very negative way, kind of a more of a nihilistic way as opposed to a hopeful, meaningful uh, way that uh, is a perspective, I think, afforded to us by an experience with God. Yeah, I think that's really good insight into this. A couple of questions and thoughts that I had when I was reading this. So we have this this beautiful, wonderful, awe-inspiring God, who his work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men, but he curses them. His work and glory is to bring to pass their immortality, but yet he has no no qualms with just like condemning them to hell. And those two things just seem very polar in, in the way we view God. And that's why I think this distinction here between a metaphysic and an epistemic distinction is a really important one. Because when we start to realize that, how does God actually bless us? How does, do, is this a conditional relationship with God? Is it that when we just do X, then God, God does Y? And so really he's just giving us, you know, little, little treats as, as we go along. And to be fair, I think in a lot of ways, maybe that was close to the understanding that God is just, he only blesses you when you do what he says that, because that's the language that's used. 
But as we, as we go along and as the gospel unfolds and as the restoration builds, and as we begin to see that what Joseph's life was, what the context was for his day, what they were coming out of, and the step-by-step progression of what they were willing and able to accept. Because in their context, they're, they're mid-19th century farmers in the frontier at this point. I mean, this is Ohio, and for them in that day, that is, that's wild, wild west territory, right? And so there needs to be heavy regulation on morals and attributes and, and, and the law and, and, and the code, you know, the code that you needed to stick by. But for them, it's to see that God is here to truly bless us because in the, in the way that they're coming from, like, especially with Calvinism, Calvinism is this concept that everything is predetermined. Everything is already outside of your power, outside of your control. You have no say so in how anything's going to happen to your life. And, and Calvinism had been pushed back against quite a bit already prior to the second great awakening, but this kind of way of thinking still was around. And so when you see that there is, there's this really popular view of God where he's just, you're, you're going to hell regardless of what you do. It's already been predetermined and yeah, that's it. You're done. And then this message comes along where God is actively seeking to bless you, where he is actually a participant in the story with you. I mean, this is a major step up in how they are starting to view the grace and mercy of God. You know, we talk about the restoration of the gospel being synonymous with repentance. And as we've talked about repentance for so long in that learning to see God differently, learning to see him fresh, that's what they're beginning to see. And I think sometimes when we look back and we read these scriptures, we don't give ourselves the room to realize that maybe, just maybe, God has in store to reveal himself as merciful in our context to what we think God is, as he revealed himself to be merciful in the context of what they thought he was. Does that make sense? Did I explain that okay? Because in their day, this scripture here that God is coming down to delight and to bless his children— is as revolutionary in their day as it would be for God to come down here and, and have like this universally, just absolute universal loving God, right? Unconditionally loving, graceful, grace-filled God. And in fact, Brigham Young had stated that when the three degrees of glory was revealed, and we'll talk about this more when we get to that section, but when the three degrees of glory were given, this was such a radical concept to so many of the saints that there were some there were some members that actually left the church because it wasn't vengeful enough against the sinner. That this new way of seeing heaven was so radically more grace-filled and merciful than what had gone before it, that there were some of the saints that are like, no, this can't be, and they left. And what would happen if God revealed himself to be as merciful to our context of how we now understand the three degrees of glory, if he were to reveal something as astronomically more graceful from our context as he did back then? What would that even look like? And so when I read these scriptures and I see here this cursing, I'm looking at this far more as an epistemic uh, foundation that the wicked take the, just like we've talked about over and over and over again with Cain, he, he was the author of his own trauma. 
And in that, it was that he he lived his own curse, right? And God was always there looking for him and always there to be with him, but his choice was to live that. And so in this, God, I see God coming and saying, I'm here to bless you, but there is this thing that if you live in that false self, you'll never see it. So, you know, going along with that theme of, of sort of the epistemic versus, you know, a metaphysical reality here, I, I had sort of another moment of some difficult language here with verse five. And as I, I kind of wrestled with this a little bit, I actually brought out some things from it that, that were really interesting and profound for me. So I'm going to preface it a little bit more with saying that for me, verse five takes on a meaning that I don't, I don't expect that the people at the time would have gotten from it. I don't expect Joseph Smith would have gotten this from this verse. I don't expect, you know, any of the saints that received this would have gotten, um, would have pulled this exact meaning from it. And, and maybe they did. Maybe, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little too arrogant about that, but the point isn't, isn't that I feel like I'm, I'm right about the meaning or not. It's just the meaning that I pulled out from it is much more personal to me and it fits within the context of my experience. So uh, I'm going to go ahead here with verse five. It says, he that receiveth my law and doeth it the same as my disciple. This is a little along the lines of verse one, right? If you hear me, then I'll bless you. He received my law and doeth it, same as my disciple. He that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not, the same as not my disciple. So kind of back there, you have professed my name, but you didn't really hear me, and so you're cursed. He that receiveth and doeth it not, the same is not my disciple, and shall be cast out from among you. And then in verse 6, For it is not meet that the things which belong to the children of the kingdom should be given to them that are not worthy, or to dogs, or to the pearls, to be cast before swine. Okay, so the key that I wanted to pull out of this that kind of led me in the direction of the the hermeneutic that I want to go with here is this verse 6. It says, the, the things which belong to the children of the kingdom. And here this is beatitude language to me. And, um, you know, we bring it up every single podcast, basically, because this is the the lens through which we've chosen for the most part to view scripture and um, it's been very fruitful for me and for you as well shallow i know um, and so i'm going to use it here because it really brings some things out for me so again verse six here it is not meet that the things which belong to the children of the kingdom should be given to them that are not worthy so the things which belong to the children of the kingdom these are the virtues that we find within the Beatitudes, these different states of blessedness, so to speak, because of these virtues. And I think it fits here because we have this verse previous that's, that says that he that receiveth and doeth it not the same is not to my disciple and shall be cast out from among you. So these words cast out sort of evoke violence, don't they? You know, they, in my mind, it's like, okay, you know, this guy is getting disorderly. And so we're going to kick him out of the bar and it's the bouncer throwing the guy out on his face, right? In the snow. 
I just don't see like I don't see that happening here. You know, you have you have a church that's newly formed and you have some people that don't quite fit the mold and they're not going to like physically push them out. I think this is more uh, descriptive than prescriptive here. And what I think it's describing is that a person that um, doesn't uh, isn't a disciple of Christ, isn't following that way of the Beatitudes, is going to be kicked out, so to speak, or cast out of that hierarchy. They're going to have to kind of start all over, right, from the poor in spirit beginning. I think this so this language that we have here, he that receiveth my law, same as my disciple, he that receiveth not, this dichotomy here fits with what Christ says in Third Nephi when he comes to the Nephites and he says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. And so for me, this cast out phrase seems like a euphemism for damned. We talk about damned in terms of like progress being stopped. And so I think that actually fits here well with with this beatitude hermeneutic because we have a person who has professed to be a disciple of Christ, right? They've gone up on the mountain. They're sitting there listening to him. And it's almost like they've started through this beatitude process, but at a certain point, they decide not to follow anymore. They decide not to progress. They're damned, right? So they kind of when you stop going through that process of the beatitudes of of realizing your nature when you stop that you kind of get kicked out and you have to start over at the beginning because the precursor or the prerequisite if you want to call it that to all of this is being poor in spirit and when you lose that or or don't have that what what am i trying to say you know when when you're not striving towards that poor in spirit blessedness, so to speak, then you're not moving along that path of a disciple of Christ. And so you're kind of cast out of that hierarchy, so to speak. And so I see that happening here in these scriptures, again, being descriptive of what happens to a person as they choose not to follow Christ. And so the things which belong to the children of the kingdom, those that are poor in spirit, can't be given to those that aren't willing to follow that path. It's not a transactional thing. It's not like you do this and then God will give you this because you were a good little boy. It's just a statement of fact, of reality. Hey, the only way that you can actually attain these pearls is by going through this process. The only way that these virtues can be realized in your life, that you can really come to know and understand who you truly are, is by going through this process. And so, again, you know, I don't know that, or and and I'm I'm fairly confident that the people at the time of receiving this revelation probably wouldn't have taken it this way. They wouldn't have taken the cast out to mean that. You have to start over on the beatitude process. I'm not saying at all that that's what they thought this meant. (laughs) I'm saying that I'm going to use that interpretation now because that interpretation for me bears the most fruit in understanding this scripture. It uh, brings out a better understanding of my experience with God than any other way that I've looked at it, especially going through this time. One of the things in this section that I think kind of bolsters my way of looking at it is the last verse. 
and that's verse 12. It says, these words are given unto you, and they are pure before me. Wherefore, beware how you hold them, for they are to be answered upon your souls in the day of judgment. So this is probably my favorite verse of that whole section, maybe of all the sections we're going to talk about today. Maybe not. There's some other good ones. It kind of, it challenges us to to take what the Lord has given us and to use our agency to to wrestle with it, right? And to and to to use the revelation we receive from the Lord in a given way. And what is that given way? Well, what's interesting here is because he says they are to be answered upon your souls in the day of judgment. Well, so this evokes for me the scripture where Christ says, "With, with what judgment ye judge." You shall also be judged. If you offer mercy, you'll receive mercy. If you offer condemnation, you'll receive condemnation. I'm of the idea that we are mostly our own judges. And so however we choose to view the character of God in these scriptures is how we're going to view his relationship with us. So here it says again, beware how you hold them. Beware how you hold these words. You know, if we were to look up hold in like a thesaurus, one of the synonyms would be the word wield. And we use that in the context of like wielding a weapon or a sword or something. And so I kind of looked at this like, okay, how am I going to hold these words that the Lord has given? Am I going to wield them as a weapon to to condemn others or to condemn myself even, or am I going to wield them as a balm, something to offer mercy, to offer healing to myself and to others? And I think this verse here invites us to hold them or to wield them in a merciful way. And so that's what I'm choosing to do. And for me, it brings out a deeper, more profound meaning than, than it would otherwise. Yeah. I really like what you said about 12. It really does. That really does bring this whole section into, into a different context. These are the words given unto you and they are pure before me. All right. Well, that's great that God can give something in purity, but whoever is reading this will always read this with their own bias going to get contaminated as soon it's, as you read it. It's going to get right. When he says here, wherefore, be beware how you hold them. And I love that you bring in that wield there. Beware how you yield them. Be, beware how you use these words to others and yourself, for they are to be answered upon your souls of the day of judgment. And, and I love yeah, just everything that you said about us standing and, you know, with what judgment we judge. Because when we look that Satan is, stands as that voice of the accuser, he's that legal representative of, of the prosecutor, that prosecuting attorney. He's the one that brings all the evidence against us, mm. right? He's the one who, who's, who's like, this woman was taken in an act of adultery. This one, was, this one was found in the very act. The law says that she should be stoned. She should be killed. What do you say? And then the advocate, who's not the advocate to the father. And I think a lot of the times this is how we look at things. And we've talked about this before, that... The advocate is not, the father is not the judge and Jesus isn't like pleading our case. He's our advocate with the father. He's our advocate with the father. 
Not to the Father. He's pleading with us. Yeah, they're both pleading with us. Yeah. And we get to be the judge. We get to be the one who decides. And and this leads me back to this statement. You know, it's been a long time since we brought this up. But there was this idea that I read about. Uh, my wife talked a lot about it, actually, called uh, the empty heaven concept. Hmm. And it goes something along the lines that it's hard to imagine a heaven, a celestial kingdom full of people who are not able to go down and to minister to those of of all the other kingdoms, as it were. And you and I have talked a lot about how the the kingdoms are maybe... I'm I'm leaning more and more and more in my understanding that the kingdoms of glory have far more to do with our perceptions than of a, actually a metaphysical place. And this is why when we think about it in terms of perception as opposed to a place, you know, this gives us a, one of those really great answers as to why we're told that those who are in the celestial kingdom can visit those who are not. Because those who walk the beatitude path, who've emptied and who are no longer in context and is no longer, they, they no longer have the hooks of the, of the, the world around them. They are free to go from one group to another group, to another group, from one person to another person, because these people are living in their stories. You know, how can you go to one person who has animosity to another person when they have, when they live in their stories about their anger to the other person. They haven't emptied. They haven't followed the beatitude path. And they will not be in the same presence. They will not build bridges to the other person. They have too many of their own stories to be able to really harmonize with the other. And yet the person who's walked the beatitude path, who's let go of all of the the trauma and the identities of this world can sit just as easily with one as he can with the other because there are no stories that they have to justify. They've emptied. They're pure. And this is how the celestial person can move as that beatitude person can move from group to group and from space to space. And in doing that, they, they recognize their own true self. But yet those who are living in that false self, that, that perception where they haven't repented to let those scales fall from their eyes, then they become their own judges. And so this is where the concept that hell is full of people who think they belong there. And heaven, if it exists, the celestial kingdom, is an empty space from those who are mourning with those that mourn. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this when we talk about 76, but... I think you brought it up a little bit. There is there is this part in 76 where it talks about how, you know, those of higher kingdoms minister to others of lower kingdoms. And I, I always thought that was an, an interesting thing. You made me think of this. It's called the parable of the long spoons or they're the allegory of the long spoons. Yeah, it's and a great I, story. I think there's there's different adaptations of it, but I looked it up to make sure that it was you know, a concise telling of this. It's, I guess it's Lithuanian and all allegories are going to break down at some point. So I don't mean this as like a, you know, don't, don't look too much into it, but it just illustrates this point that we're talking about. And it's this, that in each location, this is how it's summarized. In each location, the inhabitants are given access to food, but the utensils are too unwieldy to serve oneself with. In hell, the people cannot cooperate and consequently starve. In heaven, 
The diners feed one another across the table and are sated. And as the allegory goes, it turns out that it's the same place that all of these people are in. It's just the reality they're choosing to live in. Those in hell are choosing to live in a selfish reality, and so it feels like hell. And those in heaven are choosing to live in a, call it altruistic or 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 whatever, uh, reality where they're united and serve each other. And so that becomes heaven because of the reality they're choosing to live in. Some of these metaphors are going to break down here and there, but I think it illustrates the point that you're talking about there, that it's it's really more a, a frame of mind than it is a metaphysical location. Yeah, I think so. I really think so. And I, I think that really gives us a good springboard to go into section 42 because Section 42 is this really fascinating section because, especially in context that we're talking about, because they're, they're in Kirtland and Kirtland is kind of a hot mess right now. And there's a lot of people claiming to be <laughs> a lot of things. And so, you know, we've got to put ourselves in the place that they're at. These are people who just joined a brand new church. Now, this is, this is not new. People joined churches all the time. And I, I think we have to get out of our heads a little bit that so many people were looking for the one true church and they just happened upon the one person who said that they had a true church. And that wasn't it at all. You know, it, the whole flavor of the Second Great Awakening had to do with organizing yourself to the kind of church that, uh, that Jesus had set up. And so people were looking for the one true church and they were looking for, you know, all the markers for the one true church. And so this was just, this was a way of thinking. And when we end up in Kirtland, you have a lot of Sydney Riggins congregation who are joining, but then you have people who aren't. And these are frontier people. There's no internet access. There's no regular newspaper or people that they're, they're getting information from. They ended up having these two missionaries roll through town who ended up delivering a couple of really good sermons that they liked. So they decided to get baptized. And so they just, one day they decided to change their identity. But then what do they really believe? right? There's no context that they have. There's no TV. There's no radio. There's no way of sending an, uh, an email or some kind of letter that's going to get back within a couple of weeks. And what are you going to ask this Joseph Smith, the founder of your new religion anyway? Which is why Sidney Rigdon and Partridge end up going out to New York to go meet this guy whose religion they just joined, right? And so now they're back in Kirtland and it's a hot mess, there's people doing all sorts of things, claiming all sorts of things. They hear that Joseph is doing this. Well, awesome. This must be something we get to do now as well. And so you begin to see that section 42, almost like section 20, begins to be a new law, a new regulation. You know, you can see Joseph yeah, Smith coming into this place, coming in and, uh, you know, Helaman, we, I, I thought of the Book of Mormon when I, when I was reading this section. When after the war, it said that Helaman needed to go put a new regulation throughout the church. And so he went out to, and often, I've often wondered what that looked like. But when we see out on the frontier what these people are living, we, we have no idea really uh, the nuance. I mean, we have some really good idea. If we get into some really deep history, I, I, I've seen the papers, and I, I, I don't get in real deep into Kirtland history, but when we have enough information to to know a lot about what the background history and beliefs of a lot of these people were, but not all of them. And so when we start to recognize who and what these people are and their lived religious experience and their lived political and social and family and frontier lives, 
this this becomes a a centralization of pulling all of these kind of rascals into a, a center way of looking at things. And part of the evidence for that in section 42 is that he repeats twice the commandments not to kill, steal, lie, and not to commit adultery. Man, he goes into like some really deep stuff about committing adultery and to take care of the poor. So those are the really, those are the big ones. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, love your wife, don't commit adultery, and take care of the poor. And then again, he repeats it at the very end. So this is one of those sections that end up repeating themselves. And so when something repeats, we got to look at ourselves and think, well, why is this repeating? And why is he getting a revelation of like not to kill? Isn't that, shouldn't that just really go without saying? <laughs> I mean, if any, if these people are really, really like, like what we see in our church videos, right? We, we see these people in really clean, fresh, mid 19th century clothes and, and they're, and they're always very prim and proper wherever they move and act. And, you know, we have a very 21st, very 21st century people living in very 19th century lives. <laughs> and it kind of whitewashes our history a little bit and makes it a little bit more clean cut than it really was. And the relationships between people, it ends up, it really ends up kind of distorting the real history of who and what these people are. But just from the evidence of what is being told to these people tells us kind of the, the level that these people are at. And so it, it just, it is a fascinating section that we, we really have to keep in mind that what is being revealed is truly revolutionary to these people. And in a lot of ways, it's, it seems that thou shalt not kill, steal, lie, commit adultery, and to take care of the poor. That should be kind of go without saying. But also in section 42, we're also going to get into the law of consecration. Now, th now this isn't the first time that these ki this kind of living has been tried out. You know, this whole kind of like communal living and with, uh, with consecrating it to the church and kind of getting it back. There were a bunch of different churches at the time who had tried to do this. So this isn't completely outside of the norm. This is, these are ideas that are actually existent there in their day and age and that they are kind of building upon and, and getting new ways to be able to live it. You know, section 42 is one of those sections where we can kind of see <laughs> some of the character of these people come out, like you were saying, because we've got several of these revelations. We had the Hiram Page one where it was like, okay, he's getting revelation from Iraq. We had the, the Oliver Cowdery one where it's like, hey, you know, don't command who's at your head. God has appointed Joseph Smith to do the revealing. You know, you read the history behind that and it turns out Oliver Cowdery sent Joseph Smith a, a nice little letter that said that uh, Joseph Smith was was practicing priestcraft. <laughs> so there's all these, you know, there's, there's, there's some tensions going on here, but, but then, you know, you have this budding movement of, of all these people joining the church and something really exciting is going on and, and people are getting really excited. And we're going to get into this in these uh, probably sections here next time. Uh, you know, there, there come all these spirits, so to speak, quote unquote spirits, and all these people are getting these different revelations. And what do we do with all this stuff? And, and it's this, it's this can of worms, right, being opened. This can of of religious worms <laughs> that has been then sort of developing in America and the Great Awakening and everything, and it's it's all being somewhat channeled into this new church in this group with Joseph Smith, who is bringing these revelations, and it's starting to explode a little bit and get a little bit out of hand. And you can see Joseph Smith kind of trying to put the lid back on, <laughs> so to speak. 
but uh, and 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 he does to his his credit, which you know even his critics and and biographers have have commented on that his leadership and and organizational and religious genius really shines through here. That he's able to to really form this movement and this people and into something cohesive that's able to withstand and push through all of the trials and rough stuff that's coming for them is really quite amazing. And if it's not miraculous from like a, a spiritual point of view, it's certainly impressive from a leadership point of view, what Joseph Smith is able to do here. But, uh, you know, in section 42, we, we have a little bit, it starts talking about how they're supposed to do missionary work and teach with the Bible and the Book of Mormon and which is the fullness of the gospel. And here in verses 13 and 14 says, And they shall observe the covenants and church articles to do them. And these shall be their teachings, as they shall be directed by the Spirit. And here's another one of my favorite verses in these sections that we're doing. And the Spirit shall be given unto you by the prayer of faith. And if ye receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach. This phrase here, if you receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach, I really love because it can be taken both descriptively and prescriptively. You know, we could take this as the Lord is telling them, hey, if you don't have the spirit, just don't even try. (laughs) It's not going to work. Don't even try. Or he could be saying, hey, if you don't get the spirit, you can try, but it's not going to actually work, right? There's not going to be any real teaching happening. And so I, I, I like that statement there. It can be taken either way. I generally, I'm kind of partial to the descriptive way, saying if the spirit's not there, you're going to talk and talk and talk, but people aren't going to really learn because what they're supposed to be learning from the quote unquote teaching isn't the words you're saying. It's the experience they're supposed to be having with God because the spirit is there teaching them, giving them that experience that's transcendent to the words that you're actually saying. And so that's kind of the the way that I like to take it is is in a descriptive way. I, I definitely agree with that. The the idea that when we are in the spirit and we're teaching in the spirit, and we've we've all had those moments when we've had those teachers that have stood up and who have really spoken directly to our heart. And and you can feel it. You can know it. It's just it's it's just something that you're brought into. It's a conversation you're pulled into. That kind of way of being with God, I've recognized that for those teachers that have been able to do that, you can't fake your way into that. And there's usually a lot of trauma involved in in that journey. And and I just have to laugh just because of my own experiences with God have always, the most meaningful experiences are always the ones that are usually the most trauma-filled. The ones that you had an experience that you just, you couldn't overcome that you just basically had to throw your arms up in the air and say, God, you've got to take this over for me. Or that you weren't doing anything to deserve any of God's grace or love, and yet there was an outpouring of it. Uh, You know, those moments, those teachers that can bring that spirit. So yeah, I really like that descriptive element there of if you don't have the spirit, you're just not going to be able to teach. You're not going to be able to bring someone into that experience with you. And, and into that experience of what you're, you're experiencing. And this goes back to what we had talked about with Oliver Cowdery when he ends up recording it at the end of the Joseph Smith history about his experience with John the Baptist. And he's sitting there just 
pouring out his soul about this magnificent experience that he just has. And as you read it, of course he's a great he's a you know he's a great author and, and he can really write a good story. Yeah. But you really get wrapped into this experience of looking at this man saying he I don't know what he went through, but he went through something. There was something there that he was experiencing. And, and, you know, I, I read a lot of, uh, I read a lot of books in, in my studies for, you know, religious theory and religious history. And you, and, and I've been able to read a lot of different people's, uh, spirit, you know, quote unquote, in the Mormon vernacular, spiritual experiences, divine experiences, religious experiences, call them whatever you will. But, you know, Oliver's is a special case. And it's one of those that I really love because it, re- it that really typifies here this whole thing of if you if you don't have the spirit you're not going to teach because what I've learned when I've read that that account was just this it, it builds the desire within you to go out and experience God yourself. I, I I think that's really the motivation here is that when a teacher is truly on fire with the spirit who has truly paid the price or has has really emptied. I think I think that's what you'd say that pay the price. It's not really that you have to earn it, but you just have to give it up. Mm-hmm. And that, man, that's a hard con- that was a hard concept and a transition for me to make mentally and in my discipleship because in a lot of regards our culture is merit-based. The price of the truth is giving up all the lies. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's you just got to let go. In our culture, in our religious culture, that doesn't really land for a lot of people whenever I've said let it go because because our <laughs> culture, our culture, <laughs> I mean, b- besides the whole Disney thing, but um, because we have such a strong culture of holding on, hold to the rod yeah. and hold on to your testimony and hold on to your the knowledge that you have and hold on to the ground that you fought for. And, and those are the things we hold on to. And that's not what I mean by letting it go. What I've meant by letting it go is the, the stress and the anxiety that you think you have to earning God's love, to earning God's favor, to earning God's blessings. And when we let go, and this doesn't mean we become apathetic. That's another thing that it's really hard in our in our Latter-day Saint uh, quote-unquote Mormon culture is that we we set up these mental false dichotomies that either we are strenuously working towards God or we're backsliding into apathy and sin. And that kind of dualistic binary dichotomous thinking can be helpful. It's been helpful to me at certain times in my life. Just when, you know, when there were certain times, I just was like, I've either got to sink or swim. And so I got myself out of, you know, certain situations only to turn around later on in my life and realize, you know what, in reality, I had dozens of choices. What I thought I had was just these two options. Mm-hmm. And, and so I look back on my life and I see that my binary dualistic thinking was very myopic, was very short-sighted, but it's what I needed at the time. But as I've grown in my own discipleship and relationship with God, I've recognized that there are there's such a beautiful spectrum of options that God has in store for us. It's almost like a banquet. And you know, we, we talk about we talk down to this idea of um, 
kind of a more uh, a Mormon. What, what's the word? A cafeteria Mormon, where he gets to pick and choose yeah. your Mormonism. Right. But it's but my experience is just there's this God who has this magnificent banquet out here. And we've got to sit at the banquet as the guest of honor, and we get to choose everything that's there. And we're like, hey, can I have this over here? And he's like, absolutely, it's there for you. I'm like, how about this over here? And he's like, yeah, that one's especially, well, what about this thing? Can I have my dessert first? And God's like, whatever you want, this is all for you. And and just to realize that when we give up or let go of the thing that we think we're controlling, I think that's one of the things is that in our fear, we think we can control God by our obedience. That we can demand of God blessings. And I think the standard way of interpreting the scripture in the DNC that we're going to come across that I, the Lord God, am abound when you do what I say, but if you do not what I say, you have no promise. I think that we have misinterpreted that so ardently and we've done so out of our fear that when we act, we act in fear, not faith, thinking that this is what we've got to do to have God favor us and bless us, not realizing that his entire work and glory is always proactively us. And so I've been thinking about that as you've talked and mentioned a few times here today about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. And we've talked about that a lot. But it's just landing again for me in a different way to recognize that this conditional God that is this quid pro quo, I can never say that, quid pro <laughs> quo, it ends, it's a tongue twister for me, but this quid pro quo God that I've, I've, I don't know if I've ever like consciously believed in that God or if I've just culturally gone along with it yeah. and talked about it or talked in terms of it. But then finally, I just had to sit down one time and realize this is not this this is not leading me to the good fruit of the wonder and awe of God. You were talking about letting go of things, and I think you were also talking about how you you had that belief, or you thought you had that belief of a transactional God, uh, that quid pro quo. And when you really it's hard to say, sat isn't it? <laughs> down, yeah, no, you had to say it slow. <laughs> uh, that when you really sat down and really examined what your true experience was, like who you really were, uh, what was part of you, what had been added to you truly as part of your experience, you realized that that didn't exist there. And because it didn't exist there, you could let it go. Because it wasn't really part of who your true self was. And so like I see that sometimes. We have a lot of these ideas about things that are useful sort of in a in sort of a, a sandbox work area that we're kind of we're playing with these ideas about this and that. And and sometimes we allow those ideas to sort of seep into our beliefs and we start stating them as if they're beliefs when there's no real experience to back them up. I say, we say we believe them, but we don't actually have what we might say in our vernacular, a testimony of them. We haven't actually experienced a spiritual witness or an experience with God that that solidifies some sort of understanding there. And yet, because maybe they're told to us by somebody that we trust, 
Or I think that's where it largely might come from is that where they're told to us by somebody that trusts or we sort of have worked them out intellectually. We then tell ourselves this narrative that this is something we believe. But it's not something that's really part of our experience. And so I think that it's useful for us to examine that, to like go back and look at ourselves and say, hey, what are all these things that like aren't actually part of my experience with God that I say I quote unquote believe, but I haven't actually experienced them. And then ask, you know, is this something that I think I should have an experience with? Or is this something that I need to let go of so that I can move on and broaden my experience with the reality of God? That exercise there has been useful for me to go back and be like, okay, you know, these are sort of these narratives and and beliefs that I've built up about these things, but what are the things that I really truly actually know from a spiritual experience with God standpoint? And when I did that, I realized that list of I knows really shrunk <laughs> big time, right? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't it wasn't gone, but it really went down to something that I looked at and it was more pure. I'm I'm not gonna say it totally pure because I don't I don't necessarily think I did that perfectly, but like I could look at it and be like, hey, that's authentic. That doesn't have all this buildup of other stuff around it. This is authentic me. This is authentic Ben's experience with God. And it's good. That was a really profound experience for me when I examined that. See, see, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about letting it go. It's like letting all the stories go to just be able to sit there with God. Yeah. And yeah, and just like what you were talking yeah. Yeah, I don't have anything more to say about that. That's good stuff. <laughs> I'm going to make a, a, I think, a short comment. We'll see where it goes. <laughs> about 16 and 17. And as ye shall lift up your voices by the Comforter, ye shall speak and prophesy as seemeth me good. For behold, the Comforter knoweth all things, and beareth record of the Father and of the Son. Comforter is this title word that we have for the Holy Ghost. And uh, it's introduced to us from by Christ when he's speaking to his apostles. And he says, you know, the comforter will come to you and it will bring all things to your remembrance. Here we have this phrase in verse 17, the comforter knoweth all things. So true to our, um, our modus operandi here <laughs> of uh, using the Beatitudes as a lens of hermeneutic here. Where do we get the word comfort in the Beatitudes? It's along with mourning, right? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I really, it took me a bit to kind of think through how this might fit together with that, because we think about a mourning with those that mourn, or blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We don't always think in terms of knowledge, but I know that when someone so I've experienced this like uh, in in my relationship with my wife where I will maybe have had a really difficult experience or a rough time or she has and we're talking to each other and we're explaining the bad thing that happened or this problem we have that's that's causing us frustration or anxiety 
And my inclination, and, and I know some others as well, my inclination often with when that's expressed is to is to then offer like a solution. Well, have you tried this? Well, this would fix your problem, right? <laughs> most most of the time when someone is expressing a frustration or a trauma or something like that, they don't need to hear from the other person, well, have you tried this? This will fix it, right? What they need is someone that can just mourn with them. I like this idea of the comforter, though, being someone that knows all things. And I found that in those moments of an ex- an expression of frustration, the simple statement of, I know it's hard, I'm here with you, is actually more helpful than here's the solution, right? And so I like the idea of the comforter as kind of being someone there that simply says, I know it's hard, right? That, that know with all things, I know. <laughs> and so uh, that's kind of how I've, I've looked at that. Yeah, you know, I've told the story before, and and you know this too, because we met, <laughs> we met a long time ago. How long ago have we known each other? We've known each other a long time. So about 16 years. and 16 years, in, sounds about, yeah. Yeah, about 16 years. And it, it, during that time, we we first met, you were kind of off your mission here not too long. I think you were, you were maybe a year or two or, or, or around that. But we were out knocking doors selling pest control. And we were doing that summer sales job, you know, the, the, the famous job that all college students from BYU do. And in that job, we come back at the end of the day sometimes, and it's, it's a commission-based job. And, you know, we were down in San Diego, and that's a nice place to be. And the people down there were pretty nice anyway. And But there are days when you've worked really, really hard, and you've been out in the sun, and you've really, really put in a lot of effort that day. You woke up, you were feeling great, you were going to go out, you stretched, maybe you worked out, and... You, you ate your Wheaties or whatever, <laughs> and you went out and and you didn't sell anything. And for me, I was I was newly married, and my wife was pregnant. She got pregnant halfway through the summer. Now I have this new weight on me of of providing for my family, and to come back with nothing to show for it at the end of the day was really rough. Mm-hmm. And sometimes on those days, the the only thing that would feel good, the only thing that would make me feel better, was if somebody else got zero. <laughs> <laughs> if if somebody else had a big fat donut and because there's this thing that you just you look at each other across the room and it only has to be for like a second and it's just like you look at each other and you just you just kind of nod mm-hmm. and it's like all the pain of that day goes away yeah it's just that somebody else just somebody else recognizes you and and you see that they know what you're feeling and you know what they're feeling not that misery loves company but it's kind of like that, but it's just that you just bonded with another person in their trauma, in their pain, that, that, that you recognize them, they recognize you. And just the power of that moment, you know, I've said that quite a few times you know, throughout uh, different episodes, but it really is, you know, like what you're talking about, we like to fix people's, boy them up, because everybody else who got one or two or 10 that day, they're like, oh, you know, you'll do better tomorrow. And, and, and they want to just like make it better and give you hope for tomorrow and like really, really pump you up. Yeah. But in that moment, you don't want to be pumped up because it sucked that day. And you just need someone to say, Hey, this sucks. This is bad. And yeah, the Holy ghost for me, I've re it has really become that I've really recognized that that's what the Holy ghost has been in my life. 
that a lot of the answers that I thought were from the Holy Ghost were really kind of my own inner Urim and Thummim, and the Holy Ghost next to me thinking, yeah, yeah, that's good stuff, isn't it? And you're like, yeah, that is good stuff. And and you get excited about this stuff that you, you know you're you're creating, and it's bearing witness to the truth within you, and and it's helping you become more and more and more like God. And so yeah, I love that. Uh, I love everything that you said there about the comfort. That's good stuff. Cool. Well, moving on, you know, this is this also is the section about about consecration, and consecration is is a really fascinating topic and one that we we're not going to have time on this episode to delve into really heavy. But just suffice it to say that as they're beginning it, the initial preliminary ways that they're talking about consecration is that you, basically it's this idea that you you turn over all of your earthly possessions to the bishop, to the church. And then the church then gives you back a an inheritance. It gives you back an accountable stewardship over the land or of, or of what you have. And in other times, it reserves any surplus for the poor and for the needy. And so that they're able to distribute this to be able to have kind of a central planning entity with the bishop to be able to help dole this out to the uh, to the poor. And, and so this is kind of the initial way that this consecration was was established. But I think more than just the structure and the order, because maybe maybe at some point it'll look like this and it'll follow this order. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But it, the principle behind what's going on, I think, is is more fascinating to the conversation right now. And that's this idea about property and consecration. From my younger days, I've come from a background, highly highly conservative, moved libertarian, kind of moved past libertarian on the on that whole spectrum and and I you know when I was going through BYU I I studied philosophy for the purpose of studying the philosophy of the enlightenment and to know what the founding the founding philosophy of the United States was and and you know what we call the founding fathers and when I was going through BYU and studying all of these I started studying the history of how ideas like property rights were created and how and how that's you know has started hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago. And property is just a really fascinating thing. And 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 especially in the United States context, we very much have adopted like the the John Locke version of it. You know, he's a yeah. 17th century philosopher, highly influential, you know, people said that Thomas Jefferson plagiarized his second treatise when writing the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson said, I didn't look turn to, to any script or anything else when I wrote it. I just wrote the common sentiments of the day, which is interesting because Thomas Jefferson is saying that John Locke had entered the minds of the American people so heavily that right. that's just the way they were talking. Yeah. It's public domain. <laughs> yeah. Public domain. Yeah. It's basically what he was saying is like, hey, this is just public domain now, you guys. I mean, this is the way we talk. Yeah. And and so this life, liberty, and property thing, had it became such a central tenet of our Americana and of the way we view things. And even nowadays, we can't really create a system of philosophy of rights, especially in conservative libertarian philosophies that aren't, that don't go back to what they call self-ownership or personal, pro the, the ownership of the personal self. I, I've had to evolve, you know, I, and this is kind of one of those places where, you know, when you get political, you know, political philosophy, we're not getting really political, this is more like political philosophy. When a lot of people, I know a lot of people disagree with this whenever I've stated this, but you know, my own personal views have evolved where I, I've seen that, you know, property is, is a construct, is a man-made construct 
It's a useful construct in our day and age. I see that we live in a society of individuals who've rejected the two greatest commandments of loving God and loving your neighbor with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. And that in that way of society, living in society, that having property, defined property, is a thing. But also when you have property, I love Thomas Merton. I read a, a couple books about Thomas Merton, um, things that he had said. And he said, the ultimate foundation of violence is in property. That when, once you have property, then that's one of the hu- strongest human motivations to, to use violence. And I thought that was really interesting. That to posit property is to posit the, the claim on the physical and that you will then use violence to protect it. And that's just really interesting how he extra- extrapolated this, uh, this idea that property is the foundation of violence. And so when we come to consecration, this idea of turning over your claim to this land back to God through the church, and then he gives us stewardship in return, not ownership, not this is mine, not this is dictation. He gives us a claim through stewardship that we we then have a, a certain type of claim on the land, but it's not that I possess it and I own it. It's that I am now going to work this and improve this and be a part of this and grow this and cultivate this and pour my soul into this. And I'm going to take care of this. It's almost like Adam living again. You know, he was kind of to take care of and to cultivate the Garden of Eden. It's almost the same kind of concept. Did, did Adam own the Garden of Eden? He mixed his time and labor with it, but did he, did he have a claim on it? And we'd say, well, no, God did. Well, at what point did, you know, when Adam gets kicked out, now does he have a claim to the land? He can stick off his, uh, his little parcel and claim that, and that's his? Sweat of his brow. Sweat of his brow, right? No, and so he mixed his time and labor, and now it's his. But consecration is really this interesting idea that is, runs as a counter-narrative, and a lot of people I know with, uh, like Marion G. Romney has a talk about uh, about the United Order being different than socialism, communism, in that it has pri- private property. And so I know there are several ideas that have floated around that we want to keep sacrosanct private property. Um, I'm not. I, I, I'm. And to say this, I know there's going to be a lot of a lot of uh, people who listen who think that I'm going communist or socialist, and that's by. <laughs> That's no. nowhere. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I, not in any way, shape, or form. But the, uh, there's very much a dichotomy that it's either it's either individual property held um, consecration, or it is socialism, communism, and and you know Hugh Nibble even identified in approaching Zion that this is a false dichotomy. You know, this yeah. isn't really this really isn't even a thing. So consecration is a fascinating conversation if nothing else, on the property aspect of it. Well, and I think, yeah, I think it's a complicated discussion, but what what I think this revelation does here is start the discussion, so to speak, right, among the saints of this topic. And it, the, the consecration since this time has been in the back of the mind, if not the forefront of the mind, of Latter-day Saints, as this principle or this quote unquote ideal, right, that, that denotes a society that the Lord was offering them and that they could either choose to, to live by it or not. Now, here we have it sort of spelled out in a very materialistic kind of way. I've come to understand consecration as, as something much 
more expansive and fundamental than uh, simply materialism. And and I think that you know that that's maybe one aspect of it, but but consecration is about a whole lot more than uh, materialism. You know, you talked about how you know I, that's interesting that Merton you know posited that. Maybe he wasn't the first one to posit it, but he said that, you know, that property was the foundation of violence. Like I almost, my inclination is to say the opposite, that like violence is the the foundation of property, that the property was instituted as a social construct in in a way to to reduce contention in society. Not that it is, is like this naturally occurring or, or like, divinely appointed thing but that it's a it's an outgrowth of the sort of presupposed conditions of interpersonal conflict and so you establish this concept of property that is supposed to at least in a in a nominal way reduce contention now i think i think that it's always you know to to the point that merton makes i think that it's certainly possible that like property Maybe we're getting too philosophical here, but I think, <laughs> I, I think it's certainly possible that like property by its institution guarantees a certain level of violence, but it's also possible that like it in many contexts does help prevent or reduce a higher level of violence, so to speak, if that makes sense. But certainly I, I, I agree with the concept that, you know, any discussion here when we enter into this type of political philosophy is right on the other side of the two great commandments, love your love God and love your neighbor. And, you know, that this, that whole discussion starts as soon as those are rejected. And then you get into that discussion and property becomes a very useful social construct on the other side of those commandments. Yeah, I, I, I could go for that as well. I'm not married to Merton's idea. <laughs> 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 Thought it was a, an interesting, an interesting idea, you know, and, and I like that. Cain, you know, you know, Cain is uh, is very much the originator of the city and of the possession because he's the first builder of the city walls. You know, violence did predate his uh, his city walls because he, he leaves the conversation at Theophany with God and marries his two sisters, and then they create the artisans. And it, it's the Bible's telling us that the Cain narrative is what creates is the underlying underpinning narrative of civilization and of culture. And so that's a really, a really interesting, uh, yeah. So, you know, so mm -hmm. violence there does predate uh, that kind of, kind of property ownership thing too. So yeah, I think there could be a case I made for that too as well. But, you know, there's a lot to be said here with 42 and, and, uh, and not as much time, but in moving, in moving forward, I love 61 where it says that if thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and peaceable things that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. Okay, so here's something interesting. I am beginning to see how generations ebb and flow. And in my, in my lived experience, and this is just Shiloh talking as Shiloh, I love the mysteries of God. And I love, as we've talked about before, I've come to absolutely love sitting with the questions. That the questions that the really good questions that we've talked about before, you and I have both talked about this. 
the questions, asking a really good question, sometimes even brings just asking the right question all of a sudden gives you all the answers. But when I did a podcast with Christopher recently, there was a, uh, oh, over at Latter-day Contemplation, I was filling in for, for Riley when he was, uh, when he was on spring break, but we were talking about, um, the wonder and awe of God. And a, uh, a friend of mine, he was actually an old uh, professor of mine at BYU from my writings of Isaiah class. We, we were talking recently and he, he had mentioned that he was reading a Pew uh, poll that had, uh, had been released where he was talking about, or the questions that have been asked to, to Christians all over the country, um, Baptists, Evangelicals, uh, Protestants, Methodists, Lutherans, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. And they had asked them two questions. They weren't back to back, but they'd asked them two questions. And one of the questions was, does your religion bring you peace? And the second question was, I, I, it was either wonder or awe, but does your religion give you wonder or awe of God? And what's interesting that, uh, that my friend was talking about is that Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses scored much higher than the national average when answering yes, that their religion brings them a greater amount of peace. The Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witnesses see that their religion brings them peace more than any other religion. But when it asks about being brought into the wonder and awe of God, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses answered less and lower than the national average of Christians. Hmm. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately in that what is it about our culture where we score high on having perceptions of peace, but low on the wonder and awe of God? Because for me, when I say peace, I very much incorporate the wonder and awe of God. And I think, in a, at least in a, no small part from, from my own anecdotal perspective, is that part of that comes in is that when Joseph Smith and the, the, found, and the founders of the church started, they were living in a day and age when not knowing, not knowing God and God being this unknowable thing was all the rage, right? You couldn't know anything. And, be, and they took this philosophy of not knowing to this really radical, tyrannical extreme where you could not know your place before God that Calvinistic thing that I talked about before that you're predetermined, you can do, you can do have a hundred good, you know, a hundred good works and only one bad work your entire life. And you're still, and you're still slated for hell. So you can't know, you just got to do what you got to do. And for Joseph to know in his context was such a new, glorious, revelatory, powerful moment. And for this to hear, for God to come down and say, receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that you can know the mysteries and the peaceful things, to have knowledge poured out upon you was, was new, was wondrous, and was, was just, this was a, a crazy. But now that we've come in and, and we have a culture now that is all knowledge-based, we're kind of starting to see the flip side of that coin now, where the culture itself has become, hey, you got a question? I got an answer. 
And it's we have a culture that there's no question that you can't have an answer to. God gives an answer to everything. You know, anybody who asks, you know, knocketh and receiveth, and he that questioneth will get an answer. We got an answer. In fact, you want to know something? We got an answer for it. If you ask, you know, if you ask God, He's going to give you everything you want. If you go to pray about it, He's going to give you an answer. If you've got a question, we've got it. You want to know knowledge? We've got knowledge. If you want to know a revelation, we've got revelation. And it's just a one-stop shop that we've created a culture that we've no longer. We no longer know how to sit in the wonder and awe of God because, in a sense, we think we know it already. And if we don't know it already, well, I can already know it, so that's good enough. And we don't get into those moments like Moses when he thinks he knows what he knows, but then God shows him what he shows him and says, I couldn't even show you any all of my own creation and have you remain in the flesh. And then Moses remarks to this, I knew, I know that man was nothing. A man is nothing, a thing I'd never before supposed. You know, in our, in our conceit, I think, or in our hubris, our pride, I think we might oversell this point that yes, God is there and he is there to speak with us and to give us answers and to do that. But let us not forget the wonder and awe of God in the process. Yeah, I I agree with all that. I think that we have, you know, going back a little bit to what we said earlier about, you know, kind of letting go of things. We we have adopted too easily and too broadly this culture of knowledge. And and it, it I I see where it comes from. You know, basically, you know, the the ideas that that Joseph Smith brought about were those of knowledge you know that these are these revelations that we can know God by and and uh, what does Christ say you know this is life eternal that you might know God and Christ and so all of these things are sort of like knowledge base and so what this has done i think is this is this has really informed the the latter day saint culture of of knowledge but for for too many of us it's it's not a true knowledge it's simply a culture of knowledge it's a narrative a story that we've told ourselves about things that we know and we need to be we need to be more authentic about it you know we need to let go of those things that we don't fully understand and uh, be more humble about the fact that we don't fully understand them because it's kind of along the lines of what Nephi says, you know, he goes on and on about this. He say, you know, when you say you've got enough, then, you know, you don't want any more than the Lord can't give you anymore. And, and this is so, this is what I mean by we need to let go of the, this culture of knowledge because what it ends up being is, Rather than truth statement, it ends up being a a roadblock to a greater understanding, or like you were saying, a missed opportunity to just sit there in awe. I remember there's a, I could look it up, there's a poem by Walt Whitman, and it starts off when I heard the learned astronomer, and he goes on about how he went to a lecture about astronomy and this learned astronomer went all over about all these things about, about uh, astronomy, right? <laughs> and then at the end of the poem, he says, I, I went out and gazed in perfect wonder at the stars. 
You know, because there's a place for knowledge. And then there's a place for awe and wonder. And God is everywhere. He's in both of those places. And we need to make sure that we don't get stuck in one or else we're missing a whole part of where God is in our lives. Yeah, I, I when I read in Alma 5, you know, I was thinking about that as you were talking about what women, you know, when Alma asks in Alma, I think it's verse 26, when he says, you know, I say unto you, my brethren, if if ye have experienced a change of heart, and if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can you feel so now? And that 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 phrase for me, that singing the song of redeeming love and having that radical change of heart, you know, that, that change of heart that uh, the King Benjamin talks to his people about, that and his people shout that we've had this revolutionary change of heart in Mosiah 5. And about how this is this is what is coming out of you as a moment of rejoicing. Can you feel it now? And so the mystery here, these mysteries, we kind of talk about mysteries in our culture as just something that's unknown, an unknown aspect of God's nature. But historically, mysteries are are those depths of God's nature that, like what Walt, Man, Walt Whitman says, you go out there and you just gaze upon the immensity of space and you feel the infinite nothingness of who you are in 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 the sea of stars right and it's that awe factor that thing that takes your breath away the thing those moments when you are truly brought into that love and grace and uh, embrace and and comfort of god in realizing that in your infinite nothingness of space you are known to the creator intimately and and that juxtaposition that uh, that seeming paradox is is when we truly allow ourselves to be in that moment is just amazing so i love 61 i love i love the confidence that we can go to god i love the confidence the knowledge that we can go to god and receive answers and i know i have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and god has always been there but I was never really taught how to experience the awe and the wonder of God. And that's something I've had to search for in my adult life. And something that, uh, and I like what you said there, Ben. It's not to discard one for the other. It's, it's to recognize that they're hand in hand. And unless we're experiencing them hand in hand, that uh, we may not be experiencing everything that we have. I'm going to shout out to a comment that I saw earlier today that just goes along with this point. We might be belaboring it too much, but I'm going to shout out because I thought this was really well said going right along with this. This is from a comment on a Facebook post. The commenter is Sean Kruger. He says, many in the church are too busy congratulating themselves on having obtained the truth in its fullness to realize that while they have facts, they still fail to be transformed and the gospel does not live within them. So I knew that. I thought that kind of oh man talked to what we were talking about here. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's very said very succinctly, very well done. Yeah. So verse section forty three. You know, as more of a quick recap on section forty three. You know, this is where we have again. This is more of kind of like this law, this policy coming down where we are now seeing who's going to be in what space and what in what time. This is the Kirtland Church getting its first identity of order 
right? So uh, now they need to know that revelations come through Joseph Smith. They've already had that discussion in Palmyra. <laughs> we need to have that go to that conversation again. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, Kirtland's kind of an unruly place right now. And so we need to be able to, to do this. But then we have phrases, you know, such as, I give unto you a commandment that when you are assembled together, you shall instruct and edify each other, that you may know how to act and to direct my church, how to act upon the points of my law and commandments, which I have given. Going down to verse 11, purge ye out iniquity, which is among you, sanctify yourselves before me. And again in 13, and again, I say unto you that if you desire the mysteries of the kingdom, Provide for him, Joseph Smith, food and raiment and whatever thing he needeth to accomplish the work where I commanded him. Yeah, I kind of laughed at that. <laughs> that was kind of fun. I, I did. I, I read that and I was like, oh, interesting. You know, because we have we have Joseph who is the oracle of God who in this moment who is busy about God's work. And, and so this is him being taken care of that way. And ye are to be taught from on high, sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be endowed with power that you may give even as I have spoken unto you. A lot of great promises, a lot of great promises that were, were being handed out to these saints, and they're just now coming into this new relationship with this new message of the church in uh, in kind of recognizing what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. Yeah, you know, and, and to the point we were talking about earlier where this is the the order of things is being put into place. We've kind of kind of got this hierarchy that that's continually being reestablished. Joseph Smith is the one that's supposed to receive the revelations. You know, things need to be in order. And and there's so much going on in the church right now with people coming into understanding what revelation is for themselves, that um, figuring out how it's all supposed to fit together is 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 kind of difficult. And I had this this analogy come into my mind and 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 like I've said before with analogy they all have limitations but but I thought it was sort of useful in just illustrating this point that you know if if as members of the church were all part of a symphony and and we all uh, you know our own revelation is akin to us knowing how to play our instrument and and reading the music and doing it in in the best most expressive way that we we can to contribute to the overall performance of the piece we have the person that is is in the position of the prophet or a president of the church, so to speak, basically as the conductor. And I, I don't mean it to say that like, you know, we're supposed to do exactly everything that they say. I mean it to say that you don't have more than one conductor for a symphony, right? And and they don't a, a conductor doesn't um, get into every nitty gritty point when they're actually conducting. They they give the overall flow of it, and it's up to the individual players of the instruments to to do their best and express their part in in the best way that they know how. And anyway, so I, I kind of looked at this analogy like this that that um, the prophet we can look to him more as sort of a, an overall general idea of how things are to flow as far as the church goes and what the church, the work of the church is to do. But us as individuals in our own responsibilities to receive revelation, read the music and play it, we still have to look at the music and do that. We can't, we can't um, only look at the conductor, right? We have to actually for ourselves, look at the music and do our best with it. So anyway, that was sort of that analogy that came to mind with this. 
Yeah, I like that. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about 43, Ben? Oh, yeah, with 43. So there are there are a bunch of uh, neat little things in here, but I I always like the the hen gathering gathering her chickens, right? And and this does go into the voice of the Lord in a bunch of different things. He's got thunderings and lightnings and famines and pestilences and and all this sort of stuff. This kind of evokes a, a third Nephi vibe for me here. And then at the end of all of this, but ye would not. We get over to verse 31 and uh, we have this discussion that starts in, well, starts in in verse 30, sort of with the millennium, right? And uh, 31, we have, for Satan shall be bound. And when he is loosed again, he shall only reign for a little season and then come at the end of the earth. As a family, we're we're reading Book of Mormon again. And we just finished 1 Nephi. At the end of 1 Nephi, we have this statement of Nephi that gives us, I think, some some insight into this Satan being bound thing that uh, is is pretty profound in relation to all the other references that we find in scripture. You know, and, and Nephi says something to the effect of, you know, because of the righteousness of the people, Satan has no power. And I think I, re- you know, remember learning this in a gospel doctrine class or whatever. It's like Satan will be bound. And it's like, well, what is Jesus going to come down and like tie him up and throw him in a pit or something? Like, how does this... <laughs> How does this work? Best paid for view about ever. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, how does how does that work? You know, again, understanding that Satan is literally the accuser and then seeing the righteousness of the people as the way that he's bound, right? His his accusations don't have any power, right? He has no power. He has no ability to to tempt us by accusing us of things, to tempt us to go away from God, to turn away from God and not look to, to mercy. And anyway, so I, I think at least for that insight, you know, Nephi deserves quite a bit of credit in, in bringing that insight to us. Yeah. I like that too. You know, you had brought up in verse 25, this it says, how often have I called, this is where the Lord is kind of invoking, you know, these, these ways that he speaks to people. How often have I called upon you by the mouth of my servants and by the ministering of angels and by the, mine own voice, by thunderings and lightnings and the voice of tempests, the voice of earthquakes and great hailstorms and the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind, and by the great sound of a trump and by the voice of judgment and by the voice of mercy all the day long and by the voice of glory and honor and the riches of eternal life would have saved you with an everlasting salvation, but you would not. Wow. Okay. So the standard the standard way of looking at this, and this isn't just a, a Latter-day Saint thing. This is something that uh, is had across the kind of the Christian spectrum. But it's this idea that God comes down and kills everybody. I remember, I remember the first time really thinking about this when the tsunami happened in 2004, in, in December 2004, um, in Indonesia. And then again in 2005 when Katrina, when Katrina happened down in Louisiana. And I remember hearing all of the, the rhetoric that was being put around about how wicked the people were. And if they, and if they, they must have been wicked because God was punishing them. And I, I, I've heard it before, you know, with, uh, I remember growing up in Tennessee, I grew up in Memphis and it wasn't common, but, and it wasn't among my Latter-day Saint friends. It was some against some more of my, uh, my Christian friends. Whenever there'd be a tornado that would happen, you know, you'd hear people talking about how, well, you know, they must have been wicked. You know, the people who died were wicked. And I just remember how thinking when I was young about how stupid this was. <laughs> That's just not the way that this works. That's not the way that any of this works. And and so when I read verse 25 here, and you see that God is calling upon him by the mouth of his servants and the ministering of angels. Okay, awesome. And by his own voice. Fantastic. 
And then he starts going through all these different things about, how, you know, God's coming down in thunderings, and when it's thundering outside, that's God, and you better listen up. Well, okay, well, you can go outside into a thunderstorm, look up and be like, hi, God, and, and is, thunder's going to crack. It's just going to be what that is. And, you know, when an earthquake is happening, you look around and you're like, is that the voice of God talking with the earthquake? You know, am I just missing something here that, that I don't understand the Adamic language? In the earthquake, I, I don't know, or the hailstorm. Am I missing like the divine Morse code of how the hail hail droplets are hitting my backyard? <laughs> I mean, like, really, what is going on here? You know, on a on a, like a metaphysic level. Yeah. And what I've and what I found is is far, and this is what uh, lands for me and has landed for me for a very long time. When I was a teenager, my mother had bipolar schizophrenia really bad. And there were times when my dad had to be away on business trips and sometimes life would get hard. I was an only child until I was 17. I have one sibling, my, uh, my, my one sister who I love dearly. But, but during those times, I, I, I often felt alone. I didn't have anyone to talk to. And man, God sent me some really good friends in the church at that time in my life. But I remember many occasions, I, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee as a teenager. And anybody who's ever lived in the South, or Mid-South or anywhere in, in that area knows that you, man, you get some really crazy, awesome thunderstorms and they come through mm -hmm. and I miss those thunderstorms because they're warm, the warm rain that comes in, you can be out in there and you just, I just, I, yeah, I we're getting it. one tonight. Are you getting one tonight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there in Springfield. I, I miss those more than anything living in uh, Bakersfield, California in the desert. But I remember I had a lazy boy in my room. I kind of co-opted it from, uh, from my family and brought it to my room, but my window to my bedroom opened up to um, kind of to the south where a lot of the storms would come in. And I remember sometimes when when life was getting really hard and I would open my windows and I'd, I'd get in that little lazy boy couch and for two, three hours in, at night, I would just listen and smell the rain and the thunder as it poured through. Just listening to the magnificence and the wonder and the awe of of that moment, it connected me with with that nature, with the power of nature there. I don't know what it was about that, that though, that as a teenager, it spoke to me. It just, it, it calmed me. And whenever I would start to see a thunderstorm rolling through at night, I always got excited because no matter how bad my day was, no matter what my family situation was like, no matter what was going on, I would sit there and I would listen to the rain and the thunder and the wind. And there was comfort there. And so when I read these verses, you know, it sounds, you know, you know, you said, yeah, it has a third Nephi vibe to it. But when I look here and I see the, in the tempests, it's going to be bad. It's going to be, it's when you're in an earthquake and great, if you've seen some massive hailstorms, some destructive hailstorms, famines and pestilences, these things are going to be bad. But just like President Nelson said in his Easter address recently, and he, he reiterated the story of the airplane about having these massively uh, traumatic experiences, how do we turn to God in our trauma and in those moments when those things happen? Not that that's God doing that. Not that he's coming down here and he's like, you know what I think Shiloh needs right now? I think he needs an earthquake. I'm going to speak to him in an earthquake. It's just, that's just not the way that it works. But when the earthquake happens... Now, I'm not scared of earthquakes. We get earthquakes here, and I think it's kind of funny because my pool, I have a pool in my backyard, and it begins to slosh, and like the water pours over real heavy in big waves. It's kind of fun. When that happens and your pool empties of water, then you need to be worried. <laughs> in that day, I'll, uh, I'll remember this, uh, this episode. But it, it's in that moment when 
when you're in the traumas of life, we can sit there. And, and as I've, I've expressed before, there are times when there's only one or two times I've, I've felt it and it revolutionized my view of God when in my trauma I felt God's love and his grace. And that changed everything for me. That changed everything for me was to simply sit there with God in that moment of pain and anguish. And it, and it didn't necessarily alleviate it immediately, but it's kind of like what I talked about there with that pest control, looking across the room to that guy who had zero, is that moment of like saying, God, hey, this really sucks. And God's saying, I know. And the question you always want to follow up is, but why? Why, if you know, why don't you stop this? But it was given in such a way of saying, of just the love of God being there with me. And that the there was no anger in my heart that I was going through what I was going through. It was just that I knew that God was there and he knew and he understood and was suffering it with me. And that's what I see here in the voice here. I've, you've been through all this trauma and you've not turned to me in it and you would not. And so that's the same thing with the hen gathereth her chicks idea is that you were here, you were going through this and you didn't, and you didn't turn to me in that trauma. And I was here. Um, I, I, I think that, and I think that goes into what you're saying about Satan as well. Satan is, is that accuser. He's that accusing voice and we will at one day learn how to put away the accusing voice. And I think a lot of the times as Latter-day Saints, our culture, we confuse the, the accusing voice with our conscience. Our conscience isn't necessarily an accusing voice. I gave an example before of, uh, of sitting with a bishop um, ready to confess what I thought were just like the worst things in the entire world. <laughs> and looking back on it, I laugh at my younger self. And of him just putting his, his arm up and being like, Shiloh, Shiloh, before you start, I just want you to let you know how much I love you. And I want you to let you know how much God loves you. And it was in that moment of chastisement, I've called it, you know, I've talked about it as, as my greatest chastisement, God's love as my chastisement. I was laid bare before my maker. See, the accusing voice doesn't, is not your conscience. But we often confuse that our conscience is the accusing voice. And that would that we need to be able to repair and realize that God's love is the most powerful conscience we can have. It lays us bare and it begs and it motivates us to change and to be better if we really let it. You know, I've had a lot of similar experience with uh, with like storms and stuff, and and feeling that comfort, that peace, that that voice of God in a different way. You know, just a different type of experience, and realizing, you know, one of the things I pull from this verse twenty five is is he's saying, "Hey, you can experience God literally in any situation. You just have to look for Him, no matter how bad it is. You can if you look for Him, if you listen." You know, here he, he goes on uh, later and he says something a little more pernicious. You know, it says, and boy, the voice, by the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind. And I thought, you know, like, why would God choose to speak that way? Why would God choose to speak by famines and pestilences? Why is that, why is that a God I want to listen to if that's the way he's speaking? Right. 
it made me think of it made me think of one thing that then made me think of another. But the first thing that it made me realize is that when these things happen, they are an invitation to us. Say say we see famine or pestilence. That is an invitation to us to reach out and mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, right? To care for the poor and needy that are in these situations. Do we see God there? And it, it uh, like I said, that, that made me think of another thing. It reminded me of that. It's, it's pretty well circulated. And I think it's, you know, fabulously profound, that statement by Fred Rogers, where he talks about when he was a kid and he'd see these bad things on TV and his mother would say, look for the helpers, right? So what are you looking at in these situations when, when these things happen? Where do we see God in these situations? Where we see God is in those who choose to reach out and do good, to reach out to their fellow being who they see God in their eyes and and serve them and bless them because that's what Christ did. That's where I see some of God's voice in this as well, is in in the human response to these in terms of how we treat each other. Yeah, I love that. Well, in summarizing section 44, you know, this is is given from Joseph Smith, uh, the prophet, and Sidney Rigdon in there in Kerlin High in February of 1831. And it's interesting here, this is one of the first times that now we start to get kind of legal and they start to interact with the government. They really start to try to, found, you know, the foundations of the church in verse four. And many shall be converted insomuch that ye shall obtain power to organize according to the laws of man, that your enemies may not have power over you, that you may be preserved in all things, that you may be in, enabled to keep my laws, that every bond may be broken wherewith the enemy seeketh to destroy my people. Behold, I say unto you that ye must visit the poor and the needy and administer to their relief. And they may be kept until all things may be done according to my law, which ye have received. I just this is interesting. This is going. This is just a very interesting way for the Lord to be able to keep His people beyond reproach. They're going to find out a lot of times where the people could have come into homestead uh, land and have you know, by the laws that were there, but they decided to pay for them anyway. And it's just interesting that the Lord was keeping His people beyond reproach in every step of the way. That, that there was a lot of foibles and there's a lot of things they could have gotten themselves into trouble with, but the, and there's a lot of things they did get themselves into trouble. With. <laughs> let's minimize the stumbling box. Let's here, though, you know, let's, yeah, let's let's not right. put things in the way. You know, let's not make things unnecessarily difficult. Let's let's try to to minimize the distractions, the stumbling blocks for those that for you know to make way for the real work here. Yeah, I think it has to do with going back to what you talked about justice, about man's sense of justice that this is one of those ways of mitigating man's sense of justice. Because I think what this verse talks about is it really tells us that the reason why they're going to organize according to the laws of man were so that their enemies couldn't have power over them. And that because they were obeying of the law, they, their enemies, that was the standard of their enemies. And so yeah. it was one of those ways, I think far too much we keep this sacrosanct um, view of the law as some kind of moral uh, thing in and of itself. But here it's far more utilitarian. It's far more incidental. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that the Lord is telling us to do in order so that we can do other things and not be a stumbling block. And it's even being a stumbling block to those quote unquote enemies 
because if if they we are seen of them not to violate their own standards, they may be more apt to be able to listen to the message as well. Yeah, I agree with that. Just a little bit there. Do you have anything else to say about 44? Uh, no. I mean, we're, we're going to get into a later chap, uh, section that's really interesting about this this concept. And, and, you know, the Lord tells them to to make friends of something like make friends of the mammon of unrighteousness or something like that. Yep. It's, it's kind of along those lines. So. <laughs> That'll be fun. Well, awesome. Well, this has been a little bit longer than normal, but I very much enjoyed the conversation. And so until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. 